Nā koutou, no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. The government says we're close to finalising a free trade deal with the UK. But what will it mean for Kiwi exporters? And how will New Zealand's deal compare to Australia's? The Trade Minister is with us from London. Then, after a career in politics that spanned almost 30 years, Sir Michael Cullen is facing his own mortality. I've never seen much point in being an agnostic. I think that's sort of, oh, come on, make up your mind territory, really. And tough choices for a Republican deciding who gets to join his Hall of Fame. The no-brainer is the Prime Minister. And then we had to make some hard decisions as to who would be around and for how long and how big a contribution they're likely to make. We'll have that story shortly, but we begin this morning with trade. Minister Damien O'Connor says we're close to finalising a new free trade deal with the UK. Earlier this week, Australia announced it had agreed in principle to an FTA with the UK, the first such trade deal agreed since Brexit. Shortly after he met with British Trade Secretary Liz Truss, I asked Damien O'Connor what still needs to be done to finalise New Zealand's deal. Look, there's a lot of technical work that needs to be done. Uh, the meeting uh, with Secretary Truss was very useful. Uh, we had reaffirmed um, earlier on the need to move this along quickly. And uh, again, um, two days ago when we met, uh, we said that, that we need to, to reach conclusion. We're hoping that by the end of August we can have an agreement in principle. Still a lot of technical details to work through. And uh, from our perspective, we have to make sure that the deal, as it gets close to conclusion, is really going to deliver for us. What kind of detailed points do you still need to sort? Look, there's a whole lot of issues around, uh, I guess, the timeline for a tariff elimination, um, the technical issues around each of the, uh, the, the, the chapters and each of the product lines that we're looking uh, to make progress on. And, uh, um, you know, these are very technical areas that, that our trade negotiators uh, are first class. Uh, they work through, but it's, it's pretty torrid. Um, and, and the timelines that we've put down means that they're going to have to keep working along at a pace and uh, a whole lot of issues you know from goods access through to the movement of people um, you know services investment all of these things need to be concluded um, it's a negotiation uh, we probably um, you know uh, in the end there'll be some give and take um, but we're ambitious and we think that in the end we can get to a point that will give New Zealand exporters and importers some security into the future um, and, and at the moment uh, you know, they need more security, and that's what trade agreements are about. Talk to us a little bit more about the, the timeline for tariff elimination. Of course, Australia has agreed in principle to a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom this week, looking to eliminate all tariffs within 15 years. Should New Zealanders expect the same? Uh, yes, we should. And that's exactly what we've said to the UK. I said to Secretary Truss, um, we expect when it comes to tariff elimination, um, we just want a fair deal. And uh, that's what we're asking for into this market. It's a valuable market. It, it's a lot of tradition and heritage here. Um, it's served us well in the past. And, uh, you know, as other countries come into this market, um, some of them have an advantage over us. We want to um, rebalance that. And uh, in terms of tariffs, uh, see the elimination over, over time. And, uh, you know, we're always ambitious. Um, you know, the sooner the better when it, com it comes to tariff elimination. Um, so while Australia is a reference point, we're not locking ourselves into uh, the Australian agreement. We want to do always better for Kiwis. So what are, the Brit are your British counterparts saying at the moment? 
Um, well, they've agreed to keep talking. Um, um, they haven't put any bottom lines uh, on this, and neither have we. And so it's a complex area, uh, multiple interests, uh, as I say, across a whole range of things. Um, and the things like mobility of people, um, you know, that's a relatively new discussion, um, but uh, we feel we can make some good progress there as well. When it comes to tariff elimination, though, I know the Australian uh, agreement that we don't have a whole lot of detail yet. It's only been agreed in principle, but that has a staggered approach when it comes to the elimination of tariffs. What is the specific point of contention between you and your British counterparts when it comes to tariff elimination? I mean, ultimately, it's a political one of um, stakeholders in this country um, not wanting to see us have any uh, further advantage. And I've had to, uh, in meeting with the Farmers Union and uh, meeting with people on farm, reassure them that uh, we don't want a huge advantage, we just want a fair go. And so, um, you know, as we move to eliminate tariffs, um, that, that, that just gives us a fair go. Uh, it doesn't mean that they become uncompetitive in any way. And so, um, the South American countries, um, many of those have a lower tariffs or zero tariffs on many of the goods that we'll be competing with into this market. Uh, I think UK consumers would love the option um, to, to buy New Zealand products and uh, those tariffs just make that a little more expensive for them. Um, so this is a win-win um, mm. for our exporters, for our producers uh, and for the UK consumers. Okay, I mean there are some substantial tariffs that New Zealand, especially agricultural exporters face at the moment. I believe sheep meat has a 50% tariff currently in place. What would be a reasonable expectation for agricultural exporters when it comes to a timeline for tariff elimination. Uh, those tariffs are over quota rates. Um, we have on honey, 15%, uh, um, you know, which is, and on some of the horticultural um, exports, you know, 5%. So they mm. all add up, um, and, and the elimination of those is, of course, our objective, uh, which means that, you know, that money can flow through, um, hopefully, to our producers in New Zealand, um, as long as we maintain the, the prices in market. And I've been reassuring the UK farmers that we're not here uh, to dumb down or reduce uh, mm. the, the the prices in market, uh, if consumers are prepared to pay those now, we'd like to maintain that, but we'd just like to get more um, of that return directly back to New Zealand. And so this is not a race to the bottom, this is about building value. And when it comes to, to the UK farmers, for example, we want to supply complementary uh, lamb, that is off-season lamb, that means the demand for it um, can be satisfied in the, in the uh, supermarkets. So working with them for a better outcome is, is, the, you know, is the story that I've given to them mm. and we really do believe and we will deliver on it. I mean both you and your British counterparts, Liz Truss, um, sound optimistic at, at, you know, when it comes to the progress for talks so far. But I just want to give some clarity to New Zealand exporters. Can you guarantee that New Zealand, when it comes to tariff reductions, will end up with at least the same terms as the Australian FTA? Look, I can't guarantee that. That's a process of negotiation. What I can guarantee exporters is uh, we aspire to that and better in some uh, cases than what the Australians have got. Um, you know, that's what we aim for. We're always ambitious. Uh, we're a small country, uh, but we have good traditional links into this market. Uh, many of the politicians and, and uh, the business leaders understand that. I think they like us as a trade partner. Um, so we've got to mm. pull all those levers to make sure that we get a good deal over the line. Why did Australia get a deal sorted before us? 
Look, I think that um, clearly the G7 um, summit was an opportunity for the leaders to um, uh, make an announcement and that probably um, pushed them along, um, gave them a target to work to. Uh, we didn't set the target like that, but um, Secretary Truss and I have said that we need to keep the momentum going um, off the back of that and, and we hope that by the end of August we can be in a similar position. What impact has Brexit had on the negotiations so far? Obviously you are negotiating with a government that has political incentives to prove that it can expand free trade outside of the European bloc. It has, and, and clearly there's been a lot to sort through. Um, they've got to the point of, of uh, understanding with the EU. Um, now they're looking outside, and so Global Britain, which is the uh, approach they're taking, um, is one of reaching out, and clearly their request to accede to CPTPP is another uh, indication of their enthusiasm um, to become you know, a global trading player again and uh, you know we welcome that um, we welcome their accession to CPTPP but we have left them with no um, uh, misunderstanding that they will have to uh, in this country here uh, meet the same high standards that all other CPTPP uh, partners have in, in that hard fought but very valuable trade agreement. Would you support them joining the CPTPP before New Zealand pens an FTA? Uh, look, I don't think that's possible. Um, I think the uh, FTA has to be concluded. That gives us a clear indication of, of the UK's willingness um, to lift the standards required to meet CPTPP. And uh, probably if they can't do a, a, a good, uh, uh, comprehensive and commercially meaningful FTA with New Zealand, they probably won't meet the standards of CPTPP. You're going to head to Brussels and Paris next. The EU free trade talks are heading into their 11th round. Are we ever going to get there? Yes, we will. Um, uh, I called to Paris, spoke with the uh, French trade minister on my way here. Um, he's enthusiastic, um, you know, like-minded um, uh, countries uh, seeking the same objectives when it comes to the big issues around climate change, animal welfare, food security. Um, but obviously it's more complex with the EU. Um, but we're, we're slowly building um, some really good support within the EU uh, for a free trade agreement that's beneficial um, to, to them and to us. Obviously a very big market, um, again, uh, strong traditional links, um, uh, and we want to continue those, but we need some certainty um, around um, you know, the rules of trade, and that's what, as I say, the free trade agreement um, process is about, giving certainty, um, giving future um, direction for exporters and importers um, in both the EU and New Zealand. Okay, so, so August is the aim for, for a new deal with the UK. What would be the sort of timeline that you think would be a reasonable expectation for New Zealand importers and exporters when it comes to the EU? I mean, we'd love to think that we could make good progress by the end of the year. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got a lot of resources um, focused on, mm. on these two trade agreements. Uh, making sure that at the end of the day we deliver is important. So we're not going to sacrifice quality for speed. Um, you know, putting um, a, a bit of discipline on us with the UK hopefully will we'll get us to an agreement in principle. Still work to be done. Um, but that will leave us a bit more focused for um, the EU and to get, you know, substantive progress by the end of the year. 
it has been an incredibly tumultuous period when it comes to free trade and global trade. Uh, we have had a, a US president um, pushing an America first agenda, a change in administration, Australia's tiff with China, COVID-19, all sorts of disruption to global supply chains. I just wondered if in the time you've had in the UK so far, anything has added to your perspective? Have you, have you gained a sense at all as to what the global appetite for free trade might be off the back of COVID-19? Look, we'd seen growing protectionism um, before COVID. That was of concern. Um, but I think what COVID has taught us is that uh, when it comes to vaccines, um, they're produced in all different places around the globe. Uh, the components of them, 280 for Pfizer, uh, are produced in, in over 80 countries. Uh, so, you know, if we didn't have open trade, we wouldn't be able to, you know, um, create the vaccines, distribute the vaccines. And I think that applies to many, many essential products around uh, the planet now. We're interdependent on one another um, and making sure that we don't have any unfair trade barriers means that we can rely on one another more and, and as these new disruptions occur um, then we'll be able to help one another through it. Um, closing down the borders um, Growing protectionism is not the way uh, through the new disruptions of, of uh, the future. And I think the COVID vaccine uh, scenario has opened everyone's eyes to that interdependence. Um, that's what we call trade. You personally are fully vaccinated. Have you gleaned any insights from travelling as a vaccinated person that you'd be able to share with your colleagues? I think we still have to be really, really careful. Um, there are new variants um, and each country that you go into or that we've been into so far is facing different challenges with COVID. Some have high levels of vaccination, some are trying to get there. Um, the reality is, is, is uh, COVID is still present in most countries, uh, can spread very quickly um, and ultimately um, for, from New Zealand's perspective, none of us want to bring COVID back into the country. So there will be people starting to move out around the world. Um, we just have to be really, really careful, keeping masks on, you know, keeping uh, washing our hands. All of that is still necessary uh, in a world full of COVID. That was Trade Minister Damien O'Connor in London. Up next on Q&A, the Prime Minister has had her first jab and the government has presented its vaccine rollout plan for the general population. Is it enough to stifle criticism about the speed of New Zealand's rollout? I can confirm that we will be rolling out the vaccine for the general population using age cohorts. That means it will help us manage both demand and supply, and also that we'll be able to communicate nationally when we're ready to start vaccinating the next age band. That was Jacinda Ardern at a press conference with details about the vaccine rollout for the second half of this year. New Zealand is currently among the last countries in the world, or the developed world, for vaccination progress. But how should we assess the vaccine rollout? Our panel this morning, Dr Api Talimaitonga from the Pacifica Medical Association, NZME's Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, and Economic Commentator Bernard Hickey. Tēnā koutou. I'm going to start with a question for each of you. Api, is the vaccine rollout going well? It could be better. 
I think we were a bit ambitious with vaccine targets and we weren't quite sure about our supply chain. What I found disappointing is we didn't use the learnings from COVID last year, where we knew that if we got the messaging right with Pacifica, with Māori communities, that we could get more engagement. It's happening now, but it's been a bit slow. Um, it is still encouraging to mm. see that we're a bit ahead of schedule and the vaccine concerns or hesitancy has dropped quite yeah, a bit. That's, that's certainly good to see. You know, it's interesting to note the government says that it is ahead of its projections or targets overall at overall, the moment, yeah. but in Tāmaki Makoto and in the County's Manukau DHB, they are quite substantially behind their targets at the moment, which must be a concern. It is a concern, and this is why I think we could have been smarter at the messaging. We could have... Uh, thought about the venues that would work, going to churches, that infrastructures, that worked with the testing last year. We could have now, Auckland Regional Public Health has a phone line where if you've got a congregation that likes to be vaccinated together, you could book in a whole lot of people. Mm. Um, Taupo, where if you have a church gathering and you have more than 30, ring their DHB and they'll come and vaccinate you. Our appointment systems and our uh, people having to ring an 0800 number to make an appointment, it's all very well for you know people like us, but if you're a hard-working mum of six in South Auckland, ringing a number, waiting half an hour to an hour just doesn't work. Fran, has the vaccine rollout gone well? Uh, well, I think what was interesting was the Prime Minister to Business New Zealand a month or so ago said July was going to be sticky and there was a potential we might run out of vaccines. And um, obviously there's been a bit of a pause uh, in how the rollout is going. I think we could have been better prepared uh, last year. We've had a lot of time to get a system in place uh, for doing the vaccine rollout and it's a bit hit and miss. Uh, speaking personally I've, I've already had a number of texts inviting me to enrol. I already am enrolled so I mean for my first uh, vaccination so in that sense there's obviously a bit of confusion in the system. My concern is that this is going to have to be an annual event from the sound of it where we're going to have to have booster shots mm. or a bit like we do with flu, deal with you know a different variant that might arise. So in some ways we need to put in place that system that is actually going to be able to be used again and again until globally the pandemic is stamped out, if indeed it can be stamped out. Bernard, is the vaccine rollout going well? It's a bit haphazard in terms of um, when people are getting it, different ways that the different health boards are doing it. And uh, I agree that we should have had more in place ready to go. The IT system is not properly rolled out yet. And um, there is a you know, concern that we're not getting vaccinated as fast as everyone else. We're really limited by the supplies coming to us from Pfizer, but also some decisions we made last year not to basically pay over the odds to get the Pfizer vaccine earlier. However, I think, um, I mean, it's great that we can get vaccinated as fast as we can, end of the year, mm. that's excellent. But we are really dependent on what happens in Australia because we're part of that bubble and we really don't go beyond Australia until Australia's done. And they have extra problems on, on top of ours, multiple vaccines, uh, multiple governments, uh, and they may not be ready, according to their own Treasury, until mid-2022. That mm. means I don't think we actually really open up the economy beyond 
Australia until the end of 2022, early 2023. When you say that, you mean opening up the borders? Beyond Australia. Right. That's right. Properly. Fran, what, we saw the Prime Minister getting her first jab this week and the plan for the second half of this year, rolling the vaccine out via age groups. How do you think that will go in terms of stifling the criticism of the rollout? Yeah, I think there's an age group issue, uh, but I also think we need to be uh, much more, I guess, talk, picking up on Bernard's point about opening the economy um, and to other countries. Obviously, Singapore has been talked about by both mm. Australia and New Zealand, but nothing firm yet. But we are going to have to get some of our um, business people out mm. on the road. I mean, people are now talking about the need, Zoom's limitations, the need to actually go see, um, you know, investments offshore, meet with partners, in much the same way the government has said it wants to bring, um, you know, 200 high net worth investors into New Zealand to kick the tyres and, and, you know, do all of that. So face-to-face -face contacts essential. I think there needs to be a real emphasis to go out to those people who do need to go out there in the interests of jobs mm -hmm. and the broader economy, make sure they're vaccinated quickly, irrespective of their age. I mean, they might be a 35-year-old rather than a 65-year-old. But it's you know what I mean? for me, Fran. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was thinking of you, Jack. <laughs> and, um, but however, um, I, I think that needs to be a priority as well, not just thinking of people who might have physical vulnerabilities, which is important, but also thinking about people who do need to get out into the world. Wow. Api, how concerned are you about the situation in Fiji? I'm very concerned and uh, it's sad uh, because of a whole lot of reasons. One of it is the political situation and part of the population do not really believe in the leadership. So when the leadership tries to give advice on what to do, health advice, um, it's not been listened to and um, social media spreading misinformation that this is the government trying to control you mm. rather than a public health response. I've been quite lucky, Jack, uh, been part of the Ministry of Health's roadshow going around Pacific communities around the country here in mm. New Zealand, but I've seen how each DHB has responded and the smaller DHBs have done better mm. uh, where they've actually, like Nelson Marlborough or uh, Midlands worked in with the community. So when grandma uh, Samoan ladies brought in for vaccination, they've offered it to the whole whanau mm. uh, to try and get the vaccine numbers up. We also should take into account the real problems at the Waikato with the um, ransomware attack, which means that I know I've got lots of family and friends in the Waikato that it hasn't been great there because They've, they've been really hammered hard. Yeah. So that, that will have to be considered, I mean, some big population area. Now, Fran, you talked about the importance of face-to-face -face meetings yes. and the economic recovery uh, from COVID-19. Of course, Damien O'Connor has been in London this week meeting with his UK counterparts, yeah. sounding pretty optimistic about the FTA with the UK. He said to us, mm -hmm. we should expect the same or an even better deal than the Australians. What do you think? Well, we certainly have to have the same as the Australians. It would be odious otherwise, I'm afraid. Um, you know, but however, I think one good thing about the Australians was because they had the G7 and because Scott Morrison went over, they were able to have you know, the dinner with him with Boris Johnson and then announce it, the deal, essentially. Mm. So, I mean, that, that was a good waypoint. It's also helped us. Um, we might be running a bit behind, but it's meant that we can accelerate the deal. I think, um, you know, one of the um, cards New Zealand also has is geopolitically, we are the depository for the CPTPP, which 
Britain is very anxious to get into. And so in that respect, um, you know, giving us a good deal would, would also help a little bit with, with the atmospherics on that. But it's a big, big move for the UK because it has been quite protectionist. The mm. tariff rates have been quite exorbitant on some of our products like cheese and so forth outside of tariff-free quotas, uh, which date back, you know, pre-EUC and Eurozone. But, um, you know, but there's other things. I mean, the way they frame the deal now is to look at what can you do about, in, you know, indigenous um, uh, side of things. So, in other words, what do Māori want? Some, some um, side things around women and trade, uh, Māori exports, um, also digital and so on. Mm. So there, there's a whole raft of stuff which sits outside of exporting goods, particularly agricultural goods. I was particularly interested in the Australian deal, looking at labour mobility, mm. and Damon O'Connor mentioned in his interview that's one of the discussion yep. points. Uh, we export a lot of um, goods and services, but mm. actually the people side of the trade, people, backpackers coming to New Zealand, New Zealanders going there for the OE. Australia managed to extract uh, an increase in the age from 30 to 35 for people who are having OEs in the UK. And I know for a lot of New Zealanders who feel mm. that COVID robbed them of the chance to do an OE in mm. Britain, that would be a really useful thing to get. And for a lot of um, businesses, they are crying out for those British backpackers. Yeah. And that will be an interesting thing, whether the government uh, offers up extra visa um, time or extensions for backpackers. A couple of very interesting economic data points I wanted to ask you about this week. First of all, those pandemic-defying <laughs> GDP figures, but also the new numbers out of the Real Estate Institute showing once again we're hitting record highs for New Zealand residential property. Does that mean that those tax changes the government announced aren't working? Well, they haven't had the same impact, uh, the, the impact that we thought, and uh, neither has this apparent um, wafty, wavy finger to the Reserve Bank about um, not uh, doing too much to pump up house prices anymore. That is, um, that's a concern uh, for a lot of young New Zealanders who are currently... Maybe they've got some skills. Uh, maybe they're not lucky enough to have parents who have equity or they've married into a family that has equity in mm -hmm. a home. They must be thinking, gee, I can get a 30 40% pay increase in Australia and rents in the CBDs of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane have fallen during COVID, 50 to $100 a week, whereas ours in Wellington and Auckland are up 50 mm -hmm. to $100 a week. And that's the, the, the real concern with the unaffordable housing that we are bidding in, not only inequality, but offering up this huge um, chance yeah. for Australian recruiters, and they're here, to hoover up our, our young people. Yeah, are you surprised once again, Uppy, to see those numbers this week for real estate housing? I am the surprised. most expensive it's ever seen, yeah? Um, one of the things I wanted to say was there's not much good things out of COVID, but one of the things it did was shone the light on um, the overcrowding in houses for Pacifica families in mm. South Auckland, 40%. And when they were diagnosed with COVID, were told to go home and self-isolate. Well, how do you do that in an overcrowded home? So it's really brought it to the fore and allowed the government to look at this as a primary mm. policy initiative they should help yeah, Just a couple of weeks ago, the government decided not to build the Mill Road um, uh, roads, yeah. which would have opened up another 20 or 30,000 houses. I understand the climate change implications, yes. but housing is the most important thing we can do for everyone. It, it hits everything. Health, education, a lot. And that, as well as the Tauranga Road not going through, uh, says, sends a message to the development community, actually we're not 
we don't want to do things that quickly and that was really disappointing uh, and we're just not getting fast enough action on housing supply from everyone not just the government but councils. And, and Fran do you share those concerns of Bernard that this might lead to some sort of exodus and contribute further to the labour shortage? Oh yeah and um, it was made uh, quite clear actually at the Auckland Future Summit, Future NAS Summit a month or so ago uh, when Anne Sherry who is the Australian Chair of the um, Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum basically pointed out you know this is exactly what's going to happen. Mm. Australians are going to come in here, um, get your best and brightest. Um, they're also facing labour shortages. They've had everyone hermetically sealed uh, over there and they want to grow again. So again, it's, it's offering um, our bright, good people who can't get ahead here mm. outside of taking on onerous, ridiculous debt. Um, you know, an opportunity to go and have a, a decent life somewhere else. And that's a big shame. It shouldn't be how it should be. But we've become really a very overpriced archipelago mm. to live in, frankly. Mm. Before we let you go, it is, of course, the uh, weekend of the New Zealand First AGM. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, One News political reporter, Mikey Sherman, was one of many journalists yesterday trying to track down Winston Peters. Winston Peters was playing hide-and-seek today. Here he is behind partner Jan, and here he is grabbing a cup of tea until, of course, he spots the camera, keeping his powder dry until his big speech. Mr Peters, could we have a quick chat, please? You know the answer to that is no. Is <laughs> yes, anyone would think that Winston Peters knew how to play the media. He's going to be addressing the AGM this afternoon. Yeah. Um, I hate asking this question. Can we rule Winston out at this stage? Is New Zealand first on the comeback, Uppy? Uh, <laughs> yes, you can't rule him out, I suppose. Um, I'm much more interested in serious policy rather than personality politics, so... <laughs> So you won't be attending the I AGM won't be this attending afternoon. The AGM. Fran, what do you think? No, I don't think we can rule Winston out. I mean, one of the things he did say that he was, you know, he's been looking after himself. He turned up at the China Business Summit, but skillfully stayed out of the way of any media there. Um, but he, um, he's looking good. His partner's looking good. He will use this time to replenish himself spiritually, physically. You know, after, you know, just from the sense. Spiritually, of... hang on. What <laughs> spirit are we talking about here, Fran? <laughs> His. <laughs> His spirit. <laughs> And, you know, in the sense of, um, you know, just having time out from politics, which is quite quite aggressive on people and, and, and their state of health and so on. Um, who else do they have? Um, you know, they haven't brought forward anyone. Shane Jones was not able to make a hit in Northland. There was hope that he could secure a seat. And also, of course, that would have paved the way for the party to return mm. to Parliament anyway. But that hasn't happened. And, you know, the younger blood hasn't really been given enough opportunity to shine. Mm. I mean, Winston dominates everything to a large degree mm. uh, from that party. What do you think, Bennett? And um, he's not been brilliant at bringing forward new leaders, really. It's a one-man party. And he has done this before. Remember, he was out in 2008. He spent mm -hmm. that three years. No one ever saw him. And we thought, oh, that's it. He's gone. And then back he comes. So, yeah. um, he re rebuilt the party in that time. Mm, yeah. and, and today and yesterday might be part of that. Yeah. 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 All right. Hey, thank you so much for your time and insights, guys. We really appreciate it. Bernard Hickey, Fran O'Sullivan and Dr Api Talimaitonga. Up next on Q&A, Sir Michael Cullen on the future of New Zealand superannuation and the mistakes he thinks governments made. There would have been very high returns from investing in the superannuation fund. It would probably be, my guess would be, we'd have to have done very badly if we hadn't got a $100 billion fund.
Hokimaiti, we welcome back to Q&A. So Michael Cullen is one of our longest serving finance ministers, forming a formidable duo with former Prime Minister Helen Clark during his lengthy stint in Parliament. He was a central figure in policy development for the fifth Labour government. Sir Michael has late stage lung cancer and has reflected on his life and political career in a new memoir. For his only TV interview, I visited him at home this week in Ohopi Beach. Behind me, we have a Prime Minister. July 1984, David Longy's Labour is voted into government, Robert Muldoon is out. Adding to the sting of defeat, Wellington's Evening Post carries news of a national leadership coup. Sir Robert Muldoon today signalled that his leadership was doomed and that he would probably be replaced by senior cabinet minister Mr George Gare. The only problem with the news is that it wasn't true. The report was based on a prank, a fake press release from the incoming Labour government's new senior whip. I thought, as we know Mike Cullen very well, I thought, what a great joke. Mike's at it again. Of course, he didn't sign it himself, but there was no doubt that I knew that it was Mike Cullen. Amidst grumbling from the duped members of the press gallery... Right, where's it going to go? The MP for St Kilda promised he'd cut back on the practical jokes and focus on the job at hand. Much of what was done in that first term was a, a, a mixture of very traditional Labour Party promises with economic reforms which had been made necessary by the sort of peculiar extreme that Muldoon took New Zealand's economic policy in, in the opposite direction. I mean, his policies were a kind of um, an enormous extension of the post-war economic consensus in New Zealand. From one extreme to another, it soon became clear Finance Minister Roger Douglas was planning reforms that would fundamentally change New Zealand society. State asset sales, deregulation and massive tax cuts. Labor's caucus was split. Longy appointed Michael Cullen Deputy Finance Minister in an effort to temper the Rogernomics reforms. What was your relationship with Roger Douglas like? Well, at first, quite good. I mean, I, I knew Roger coming to visit as a visiting MP quite early on. Um, when his thoughts weren't as far to the one end of the spectrum, shall we say, as, as they became. He wasn't outgoing. He was always a little, a little introspective. I think one could say, but he hadn't become ideologically obsessed. He hadn't, he hadn't decided there was one truth and that this truth must be carried through to completion, or if not, everything was a waste of time. And I was seen as a backslider because I'd supported much of the reforms in the first couple of years. I was seen as a sort of traitor for saying, well, no, we don't carry on and we kind of deregulate everything in sight and, you know, we start flogging off the schools and, and so on and so forth, which was for the agenda which was supposed to be carried through. So uh, I, I fell out completely with, with that group. And it took a long time for some other people to sort of wake up that now, this wasn't really what I went into the Labour Party for. This is not the Labour Party that I wanted to join. And Mrs Bulger as well. Turfed out of government in 1990, Cullen was in a better okay. position to pursue his the own agenda when Labour returned to power in 1999. The KiwiSaver designed as a simple low-cost scheme uh, to improve the long-term savings habits of New Zealanders. 
As Finance Minister, Attorney General and then Deputy Prime Minister, he played a significant role in developing policy throughout the Helen Clark years. When you consider your personal achievements within Parliament, how do the establishment of KiwiSaver and the Superfund rank? Well, they rank high. Unfortunately, the Superfund doesn't rank as high as it should because the previous national government didn't put a penny into it. Um, and that was a period when there would have been very high returns from investing in the superannuation fund. It would probably be, my guess would be, we'd have to have done very badly if we hadn't got a $100 billion fund um, by now. Um, KiwiSaver was an evolving thing in my mind. Um, so my, my own thinking gradually moved through to, well, I still don't quite believe in um, a compulsory privately funded superannuation scheme. What is an alternative which is short of that but may get a very large number of people into saving for their retirement? Um, I mean, we may well see a generation of people who, when they retire with a reasonably decent lump sum from KiwiSaver, that may be when they buy a house. That may be the right time for them to buy a house because they'll have enough money then to be able to cope with the nature of the housing market. Although quite a lot of people on KiwiSaver holidays, nevertheless, there are still three million people plus um, are in a KiwiSaver scheme, and even if they're not contributing now, they can automatically get back into it uh, very easily. That's a remarkable achievement in a population of five million. Do you worry about the, the future for New Zealand superannuation? Um, I'm concerned about it to the extent that uh, we have the possibility that taxes will have to increase substantially in the future to pay for that combination of New Zealand super and health, which uh, are now the two biggest items um, in government spending already. That's why I personally have come round to um, a rather odd solution, um, which is to have a sort of generation two KiwiSaver, which from that point on is compulsory. Um, so there's no effect upon what people have saved up to that stage, but there's a compulsory super scheme with dare I say it, a sort of capital gains tax, an, an exit tax when you realise the scheme of, say, 10 to 15 per cent on, on, on your takings, um, which pays back into the super fund. It doesn't go into the general account, it goes to the super fund. Over 28 years in Parliament, Cullen earned a reputation as one of Labor's best debaters. I'm such a poor little National Party leader. Please don't pick on me anymore. But he recalls turmoil within his own party. You can't count issues by numbers of people who turn up on a demonstration. The fallout over the foreshore and seabed debate has the most stressful experience of his career. I got a sense in reading the book that your main regret from that period was that you felt the public and many Māori didn't necessarily understand yeah. what was being debated. Do, do you regret anything in the, in the way you, you, you personally yeah. handled that um, debate? I think the problem that we had was, and it's a classic problem in most democracies, certainly in New Zealand, is the reaction comes too quickly and people don't think 
at the point at which we put out our proposals in, in some detail, which unfortunately were never able to be followed through, was in mid-December. And by that stage, we had progressed to the point after consultation, rounds of consultation with Iwi and others, where even Hapu could go to the High Court to establish a non-alienable customary title, where you could go to the Māori Land Court for recognition of specific customary um, practices, where we had set up mechanisms to try to get a reasonably fast set of solutions um, through about who might hold customary rights where. By that stage, unfortunately, I think most Māori have been convinced that we were going to take the foreshore and seabed away from them because they've been convinced that the court had said that they owned the foreshore and seabed. Now, the court never said that. The court said that in certain circumstances there might be some claim to the foreshore and seabed. And I'm quite sure that if we had engaged with the December principles, it would have required modification in order to produce a bill that would go to a select committee. There was no question of ramming something through Parliament. It was going to go through the whole parliamentary process. Probably would have got there about the same timing, about November 2004. And I think we would have had a much greater sense of agreement, a much, greater, a much lesser sense of pain. Uh, we wouldn't have probably have had the Maori Party. Um, the Labour Party would not have been seen as engaging in a, in a massive rapatu, stealing from Māori. It was incredibly difficult to deal with that reaction when I knew that that's not what we were proposing. Um, and what I really regretted was that I wasn't able to get people into a room and to talk through what was a reasonable outcome. After the break, Sir Michael Cullen on Robert Muldoon, Don Brash, and mostly getting along with Helen Clark. Although I sometimes find things, oh, Helen, mm, you know, why did you say that? You didn't have to say that. Kia ora te whanau. Welcome back to Q&A. Entering Parliament in 1981, Sir Michael Cullen's political career stretched from the Muldoon era to John Key's national government. A period of big changes and bigger personalities. I am Michael John Cullen, solemnly, sealy and truly declared... When Michael Cullen was sworn into Parliament, one figure still utterly dominated New Zealand politics. Uh, I won't give them very long. But... He had considerable political talents. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was quite an orator in his way. Um, he could destroy any politician at, at his height. My generation wasn't as, of, as afraid of him because by the time we came in, he was already past his peak and we used to poke him a bit. In the book, you're fairly blunt about some of your parliamentary colleagues. <laughs> I'm going to read a quote here, your description of Jenny Shipley, a physically imposing figure with enormous self-confidence, in my view not as intelligent as she thought she was, but with a greater commitment to her personal advancement than Ruth Richardson. Who on the other side of the house did you most admire? 
I admire Jim McClay enormously for standing up to Muldoon after the 84 election. I mean, it took a lot of courage to stand up to Muldoon then, even though he was um, a shadow of his former self in many ways. Bill English, who I think spent too much of his time pretending to be a southern farmer who just kind of wandered off the farm by mistake and found himself in Parliament, rather than the first-class honours degree in English uh, from Otago University, um, and, and a, very, uh, a very sharp, if somewhat slow mind. I mean, you can be highly intelligent and quick and highly intelligent and slower. Um, Bill was more the, slightly slower, but not as slow as Brash, who always seemed to have slowed to a halt by the time he got to Parliament. I've got to like Jim Bolger more and more, as we work together on New Zealand Post and we've been and made me realise that, that Jim was a good deal smarter than most of the Labour caucus gave him credit for, including me at the time. And I think we tend to make that mistake with some National Party leaders. Um, I mean, Jim was easy to make fun of because he always spoke in the accent of the last person he spoke to, is what we used to say. So when talking to Americans, it was this American twang to his accent. But he, he was wily, he was a good operator, he held together that first coalition government remarkably well, and it was only his own colleagues who got the Tatars um, at the opinion polls um, who overthrew him. But of all the characters Cullen worked alongside and admired during his years in politics, one relationship stands out. The Honourable Dr Michael Cullen will be Treasurer and Minister of Finance. To this day, Cullen maintains Helen Clark was wrong to topple Mike Moore as Labour leader when she did. But after the caucus supported her staying on in the role, Clark made him her deputy. You and Helen Clark are still close today? Yes. Yes, we, we have differing views on issues, um, but, but we remain in contact. So I said she came down on Friday with Margaret Wilson. We had a lovely lunch together. Um, I went up to her 70th birthday party. And although I sometimes find things, oh, Helen, mm, you know, why did you say that? You didn't have to say that. When do you um, think that? When do you think that? When she said something which can be taken as criticising the government, but I'm just doing it myself in an article for the Herald this coming <laughs> weekend, so um, I've, I've got to be careful. Um, but nevertheless, I'm still very fond of her. Um, even when some people are talking about me becoming leader, I wasn't actually keen. Um, I never went into politics wanting to be leader. I knew what it would mean. I knew it would mean being away from home at least six days a week, and often seven, and I didn't want to lose Anne. Um, so it was going to be quite a sacrifice to take that on. I was very happy being number two. I think Helen and I, of course, are actually about the longest-lasting partnership in, the, in that role. I mean, we were 12, 12 and a half years in the leader-deputy leadership combination, and that's a very long time um, indeed. Time is on Sir Michael Cullen's mind. He's frank about his condition. His lungs have been filling with fluid. A blood infection a few weeks ago had him delirious in hospital. There is a line, though, in your book I have to ask you about. The disadvantage of being an atheist <laughs> is that if one is right about the lack of an afterlife, one will never know it. That's right. 
Whereas if you're a Christian who believes in an afterlife, although I was trying to work out what families get reunited, you know, so you get into very interesting subsidiary questions if there was one. You mentioned trying to draft an, an act of parliament called the afterlife and what it would actually be like. Um, very funny. Um, and you get to heaven and, and it's, it's all as, you know. You, you then say to yourself, well, I was right. And all those silly bastards like Michael Cullen, well, they're not going to be here. They're going to be somewhere else. Um, and even his book won't be any use because it'll all be in flames by then, by the time he's taken it down with him. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've never seen much point in being an agnostic. I think that sort of, oh, come on, make up your mind territory, really. Um, and, and I've increasingly found it difficult to believe in what people describe as the afterlife. Perspective takes many forms. From an early childhood in post-war England, Cullen rose to the top of New Zealand politics. Sir Michael might consider himself an egalitarian, but he's lived a rich life. Are you scared of dying? I think like most people, I'm a bit scared of the process of dying. Um, I'd always been scared of dying through the inability to, to breathe. So it's, it's, it's the process of dying, not the thought of, well, some point in the probably not very distant future, um, there won't be me sitting here looking out at the dunes and, and looking across at Anne and thinking how nice life can be. Um, it'll just be nothing. I won't be there, no consciousness, like my mum and dad are now. They're not there. So I sort of hope that I, I, I will get to the stage of surviving long enough um, that the somewhat inadequate law that David Seymour, Seymour managed to get through um, will be in force. So if need be, I can ask one of my doctors um, for a nice little pill, which I can keep by my side. And if it gets too much, instead of just pushing madly the morphine button, um, kiss Anne and take it. Mm. So Michael Cullen. He and I spoke for more than an hour. We've put the full unedited interview up on our Facebook page. And Sir Michael's book, Labour Saving, is in bookstores from this Friday. After the break, politicians becoming puppets. I think they'll probably focus on something, a bit of a devilish look. So it might just be the eyebrow. Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A. Sitting around the pub discussing a politician's physical features is perhaps considered poor form in this day and age. <laughs> Unless you're at the backbencher, of course. The pub near Parliament is home to puppet versions of our most loved and loathed political figures. Reporter Abby Wakefield met some of the MPs who are about to be inducted into the Puppet Hall of Fame. Ranking politicians is always difficult, and that even applies to puppet versions of them. The no-brainer is the Prime Minister, Leader of the Opposition. And then we had to make some hard decisions as to who would be around and for how long and how big a contribution they're likely to make over the decades to come. And that actually became quite easy. So it was um, Chloe Swarbrick 
and David Seymour. Some consider it to be one of their highest honours. It means that you've made it. The pinnacle, the climax, the epitome, um, or, or even the epitome uh, of being a member of parliament. As for Chloe Swarbrick, she'll be the youngest MP to ever be part of the backbencher puppet lineup. As far as 21st century politics goes, uh, it's pretty cool. The creators traditionally tend to focus on a politician's physical characteristics or policies. What features do you think that they will point out? It could be sitting at a charter school. I think they'll probably focus on something, a bit of a devilish look. So it might just be the eyebrow. In the paper, for example, um, one of the two cartoons that I've got has me with a giant bong. So, yeah. <laughs> the puppets cost thousands to make. This is an artwork. It is sculpted and then uh, latex and everything is formed around the sculpture and that's so it's, it's a real process. I just hope that uh, Chloe's one is you know all made out of um, you know recycled materials. The pub provided a backdrop for the much-loved backbenchers show and it's stacked with political history and references including on the menu. The grand unveiling of puppets goes back to the days of Jenny Shipley. We created a galleon and, and she was on the galleon with a cannon and Winston Peters was across the pub receiving the shots from the cannon. <laughs> when Helen Clark first saw her puppet, she just loved it and you could see it on her eyes and, and her smile. And if the MPs want to, they can choose their own theme music to walk out to for the big reveal. Do you know what song you're going to pick? Yeah, I think maybe a bit of Joe Cocker because, you know, I like the rock. Say what? It's good. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's scribe. I love rock and I also love um, blues music in particular. Just like you can't judge a book from its cover. As for Ms Collins, she sees her immortalisation in latex as a message for the National Party. Really good that it's, um, you know, I'm there, it's not past um, leaders, it's me there, then, now and for the future. And despite the worry about overemphasised facial features, these politicians couldn't be happier to be part of this esteemed society. I think it's a cool part of our political culture that, you know, you look at democracy around the rest of the world and we can do these nice little things. It's actually a real privilege and it's, it does make me laugh because I think we need to have a few laughs in our lives. Look, it's, it's not quite akin to taking pride of place in an art gallery or a museum, but if anywhere, I think that the back pictures is, is where we're fit. As for the pub owner... Well, it's just an amazing experience. It's, uh, it's, it's up there with Christmas. The curtain will drop on this year's puppets in just a few days' time. Oh, so good. Abby Wakefield will show off the new puppets live on breakfast this Wednesday morning. And because I know you, you, need, you need this in your life, if you want to see the full outtake of David Seymour <laughs> singing along to his phone, you can go to onenews.co.nz. The full thing, we'll make sure the whole thing is up there so you can enjoy it. Maybe you want to see it as your ringtone. I don't know. <laughs> for now, though, kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Ngā mahikia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the q team. Marae is up next. Hey Tera Wiki. We will see you next Sunday morning at 9am. 
Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.